You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 564 of this podcast. Today is... Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about (laughs) a few things that are uh, maybe related, possibly related, hopefully not related, but but quite possibly related with regards to World War III. And are we in it? If you'll remember, in a recent podcast episode, I shared with you a not-to-be post saying that the guy who predicted that the Soviet Union was going to fall 10 years before it did is now saying that we are in World War III, and it started with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, whether he's right, whether he's wrong, in future years to come, future decades to come, that remains to be seen. But either way, there are a lot of people buzzing about the possibility of a conflict with China. And I think we do well to hear them and to ponder, what if? What if? What is that going to mean for us and for our posterity? What does that mean for our way of life? What does that look like in the way of impacts on our day-to-day activities or plans for the future or how we raise our children or how we love our husband or wife? Most of my audience is male, so I'll say, How does it impact me to love my wife if we're about to enter into World War III? Also, what does church look like? What does work look like? What does entertainment look like? What does our culture look like? We should consider these things soberly. But before we get into current events and predictions, which only the Lord knows whether they're correct, let's read Proverbs 18, shall we? Starting from verse 1 in the ESV, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. When wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. A fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. The name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. 
A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from Yahweh. The poor use entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Okay, so I don't think this is the first time I've read Proverbs 18 on this podcast, for starters. But I was writing yesterday and making some progress on my book, my latest book, and this is why we got married. And it's taking me quite some time. I'm not going to rush it because I think it's very, very important to my children's future that they marry well and wisely and that they have the right attitude going into the whole phase of life <laughs> that in not so many years they are going to be in where they will have the option, I hope and I pray, to marry. And to marry well and wisely is, humanly speaking, the most important, most impactful decision they will make as far as their future happiness, their future prosperity, their future peace, their future productiveness, who they marry will matter a great, great deal. And I don't want that to be a crushing thought as if they have no guidance, they have no way of discerning between what their options are, whether to marry or to remain single, or if they have any of them multiple options as far as who they could pursue or be pursued by. In the case of my daughter, she'll be the one getting pursued, I'm sure, but my sons ought to be the ones doing the pursuing when the time comes. I don't want them to be led around in a superficial way where it's only the pretty face that gets their attention and whoever has the prettiest face is the winner or whoever is the most charming is the winner because beauty is fleeting. Charm is deceptive, but a woman who fears Yahweh is to be praised. That's important for us to remember. That's important for us to know in this day and age, no less than in previous to those who say the Bible is outdated and it was written thousands of years ago. And how can you trust a book that was written thousands of years ago? We have access to so much more information now. How can you go back to something like Proverbs and think that you're being progressive or that you're being advanced and modern and sophisticated? I would just say all of the themes covered in Proverbs are still with us. And there is no new thing under the sun. We still have people who are charming. We still have women who are beautiful. But if we would have a woman who fears Yahweh, then we have to go back to Proverbs. We have to go back to God's word and be students of it and meditate on it 
and incentivize and reward meditating on it. We have to do that. And if we won't do that, well, then we're actually the ones who are failing to be progressive because, as C.S. Lewis said, in the case for Christianity, we all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. There is nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it's pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistake. We're on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. Yet I'll say, in working on my book, and this is why we got married yesterday, going over to the park with my free coffee, Lorna and I both were very generously gifted a gift certificate from our friends, Luke and Kate Bergman for Christmas. I went and used mine, got myself a free coffee, a protein granita. It was delicious. And worked on my book. I wrote a chapter. And I happened to write the chapter, which I planned at the outset would be titled, He Who Finds a Wife Finds a Good Thing, in my section on healthy marriage. I found myself going back to Proverbs 18. Verse 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from Yahweh. And meditating on that, because what does that mean? What does it mean to find a wife? Well, it would seem to imply that either you stumbled across one or you were actively searching for one. Either way, the man is the one doing the finding. Now, that isn't to say that a wife can't find a husband or that a woman can't find a husband. But it is to say that in the case of this proverb, the man is the one doing the finding. He is the one initiating. That's okay. Not only is that okay, but that is as God intended. The man should be the one initiating. And if he's not, well, something's wrong. Something's wrong. But it says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And I think that a lot of feminists would be offended by the notion that a wife would be described as a thing. To that, I have a couple of responses. One, men and women alike are at various times described as things or compared to things or analogized with metaphors that are important and meaningful for us to understand ourselves in relationship to God throughout the scriptures. Think of Paul, the apostle, writing in Romans, about vessels made for honorable use and vessels made for dishonorable use and how the clay does not say to the potter, why have you made me thus? What right does the clay have to question God or talk back to God or find fault with God? No right whatsoever is the answer to the rhetorical question. No right whatsoever do we have as clay in the potter's hands. And I say, if we would not object to being described as clay, then a wife should not be objecting to being called a thing. A wife is a thing, 
But then again, a wife is not a thing. A wife is a person. And so then there's another possibility. And this is my second response to the one who would object to a wife being called a thing. Maybe the thing is not the woman. Maybe the thing is the circumstance and a happy and profitable condition in which to live. Maybe the thing is the augmented strength which the man who has found a wife now enjoys. His abilities to serve God and to love his neighbor are now increased if he has found a good wife or a woman who fears Yahweh. But it says that he obtains favor from Yahweh, which I think you can interpret in more than one way. One way being he obtains favor from Yahweh in the first place with just having found a wife at all. But there's also an expectation of favor attached to this. He's happy right now in part because he's expectant of good things. He's happy because he's hopeful. He celebrates, and we should celebrate with him, because this is going to mean whole new horizons opening up in his future that weren't possible. For instance, raising godly offspring. It's awful hard to do that unless you're going to adopt without a wife. If you're going to make people the old-fashioned way, you need a wife, men. (laughs) If you're going to raise those children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, I'm not saying you can't do it if something happens to your wife where she's ill or she leaves or she passes away tragically. But boy, howdy, I can say this from experience as a father of eight, that raising children It's a lot easier. It's a lot more happy and productive with a wife because I have certain blind spots or vulnerabilities temperamentally or from a perspective standpoint, and my wife helps to balance those out. I am not always the most comforting. She is not always the most assertive, but between the two of us, our children receive a balanced parental experience. That is good for them, I pray. But I take note of a few other things here in Proverbs 18. We'll touch on them briefly. Verse 1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. We don't want that to be true of us, that we isolate ourselves because we are selfish. We don't want that to be true of us because breaking out against Sound judgment is another way of saying that we are either fools or we are wise in our own eyes. And if we are wise in our own eyes, actually, it would be better if we were just fools because there's more hope for a fool than there is for us, even though the fool is going to take quite a lot of punishment before he gets the lesson. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. Now, you might argue the point and you might say, well, but what if his own desire is good? And I say, what if it's not? What if his own desire is not in isolating himself to love God better and to love his fellow man better? Actually, how could it be that he was loving his neighbor as himself if he isolates himself away from his neighbor perpetually? That's his long-term plan and vision for life. 
How can we say that that is loving his neighbor? I think we have a hard time saying that that is loving his neighbor. But it's interesting that that is the first verse in this chapter where we read that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. I also think that the last verse in the same chapter says that a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And might I just suggest that your wife should be your friend, but then in another sense, your wife being called your friend is something of a demotion because your wife should be a lot dearer to you than a friend. To say that she's your best friend is great, and I take your meaning in most cases, but then again, I think we have rather a too low view of what a wife is for a man, biblically. Either way, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A man of many companions may come to ruin. Consider, if you will, what seems as though it's the opposite to isolating ourselves, namely where we surround ourselves with a lot of acquaintances. So a lot of people know our name, and we are renowned and maybe even famous, but they are fair-weather friends, if you can even call them friends. To call them companions is just to say that they are with you. They are in your proximity. That doesn't mean that they are for you. Actually, they could be for themselves, and that's why they stick close to you, because they're sycophants, and they are flatterers. And when trouble comes, they will abandon you. And here you thought they had your back, but actually they leave you high and dry. If you know that on the front end, it will make a big difference in how you invest your time and attention and who you develop a intimacy with, who you trust, who you tell things, who you call when you need help. It will make a big difference. So be wise. Be wise in your friends, because if you show me your friends, I will show you your future. Now, speaking of friends and the future, <laughs> I got together with a friend of mine, a brother in the Lord, who I really appreciate. I very much enjoy talking with him, hanging out. It is very much a iron sharpening iron, as the proverb goes, as another proverb goes, as iron sharpens iron, so is one man to another. He is very much one of those influences in my life, which just goes to show for anybody who says, oh, Garrett, you only talk with people, you only hang out with people who agree with you. Au contraire, Mesami, au contraire. Hopefully, the longer I hang out with certain people, the more we agree because we do convince and persuade one another. We do advise one another. And insofar as one or the other of us is more correct on a certain thing, hopefully we do actually come to agree with each other. But this friend of mine and myself, we got together and smoked pipes and had some great conversation as always. And it was about three hours, three hours, uh, which is actually an improvement. It's an improvement for us in a holistic sense in terms of being suitable and energetic and awake and alert. Certainly, at least in my case, he's got lots of energy. But in my case, being able to function the next day, three hours of conversation is 
Uh, that's quite a lot, right? That's that's quite a lot. It's a great conversation, but you know, let's let's pace ourselves. I say. <laughs> but we got together and we chatted here very recently about being husbands and being fathers, and work and life, and a little bit about the news and how much to actually pay attention to the news, and also really. This whole question of World War III, this whole question of are we on the brink or are we in it already? And a lot of us are just not quite up to speed yet. Now, that lattermost is my view that we are in it, and a lot of us just don't realize it yet because a lot of us have been checking out of the news cycle for years because it's exhausting because it's frustrating. It's destabilizing to our day-to-day activities. We don't know how to read the news or hear the news without getting really riled. It's worrying and we don't want to worry. So we just don't listen and we don't watch and we don't pay attention or we don't know for sure how to tell when we're being lied to. And so rather than be lied to, we just tune it out. I don't know What's fake news? I don't know what's true. I'm just going to focus on my own personal life. And that's what a lot of people do. And so I think given that fact, it would not be surprising if a lot of people have tuned out like the villagers in the story of the boy who cried wolf. At a certain point, they stop listening to the boy when he keeps playing tricks on them. And when it finally comes to be that he's telling them the truth and that the wolf is here, nobody comes because they have grown tired of him making sport of them. And what happens? The wolf eats the boy in the story of the boy who cried wolf. I think that the wolf here is China and they are going to eat the boy who cried wolf in terms of our trust in media for instance, or our trust in establishment politicians. I think that China is attacking in lots of ways and that in the future we will look back and hindsight will be 2020 for most of us and we will recognize all of the ways in which we were being undermined. Now, there's a great, great documentary put out by the Epoch Times. If you subscribe, Or if you don't, I'm not sure if it makes a difference, but definitely if you're a subscriber to the Epoch Times, you can watch this documentary for free, The Final War, first documentary on the 100-year plot to defeat America. And this is all about a century of Chinese Communist Party rule, which we need to understand is not quite like in the United States when we have the Republican Party and the Democrat Party. The Chinese Communist Party is not a political party in the sense that we have political parties here in the U.S. because communism does not tolerate dissent. It does not tolerate debate. It does not tolerate objection. It does not tolerate accountability towards its own leaders, towards its own five-year plans, towards its own behaviors and ways of relating. The Chinese Communist Party is not a party any more than 
in the Soviet Union before its collapse. The Soviets were a party. There weren't multiple parties competing and debating and getting voted in, and maybe the communists will have more representatives in the legislature this coming election, or maybe they will have fewer or they will fall out of power and we'll just vote them out. No, no, you don't vote communists out once they're in. You can only fight them out. That's all you've got. Or in the case of the Cold War, you can outspend them because your economy can keep up with military expenditures better than theirs can. Not necessarily that the U.S. economy was able to really keep up, but the U.S. economy was better able to keep up than the Soviet economy was with the Cold War. But in the case of China, China has played a very different game. China is playing a very different game. And the reason for this is very simple. It's because the Chinese are a very different people. The Chinese are not the Russians. Russia is not China. What is happening in Ukraine should sober us to the very real possibility that cities that look like our cities, neighborhoods that look like our neighborhoods, could suffer the same fate or a very similar fate to Ukrainian cities and neighborhoods. And if we don't want that, I contend we have to ensure that we do not open up a two-front war with direct engagement of the Russians in Ukraine and direct engagement of the Chinese in Taiwan. That would be unwise, to put it mildly. That is what China wants. I think they have wanted us to get sucked into a direct conflict with Russia over Ukraine, and they're waiting, and they're hoping And the longer it goes on, that it doesn't look like we're being pulled into direct conflict with Russia, the more time is running out for China to do what it plans to do and has been planning for a long, long time, according to the Epoch Times documentary, to do with the United States. Because the United States stands between the Chinese Communist Party and world domination. Nothing more, nothing less. All they want is to rule the world. And they have been maneuvering for a century to accomplish just that. Some will say that is absurd. Look at China opening its markets to American businesses. Look at Nixon going to China. And look at ping pong diplomacy. And look at the infusion of free market principles into the Chinese economy in recent decades, they were giving up on communism. And now we've wrecked it. Now it's Trump's fault, probably. Probably. I don't know how, but give me a minute. It's probably Trump's fault. It's probably Republicans' fault. Or it's equally Republicans' and Democrats' fault. I say, not quite. There have always been Republicans since the Republican Party in the United States was first founded, there have always been Republicans who are very sorry Republicans, who are Republicans in name only, and they're not really interested in the rule of law per se, or we can't agree with them on what it is that would actually be conserved. They just run at, they just run as Republicans because where they come from or where they're running, 
they would never win if they were known to be Democrats. And then they get in there and they start doing very Democrat type things. And we say, what in the world? What kind of Republicans are these? With Republicans like these, who needs Democrats? Those kinds of Republicans absolutely are equally to blame with the Democrats. But that's not saying that the Republican Party is no different than the Democrat Party. Neither should we suppose, again, that American political parties are like the Chinese Communist Party. We can make an error in judgment in both directions. One, in downplaying the severity of the threat posed by the CCP, or in the other direction, associating Republicans and Democrats here in the U.S. with the Chinese Communist Party and blowing out of proportion just how important, how powerful these political parties are. There's a whole lot of Americans that don't identify as either Democrats or Republicans. That's important to remember. Both parties, both of the two principal parties in America spend a lot of time and energy and attention trying to persuade those people who don't identify with either party to vote for their candidate. But either way, American politicians have been making some very big mistakes at best, but perhaps making some very treacherous moves in recent decades to empower China. And all the while, when they're called out on it, how the CCP systematically abuses its own people, grinds them down, violates their rights, oppresses them, terrorizes them. When objections are raised, what we've heard for decades is this is how we're going to overthrow the communists in China, and this is how we're going to win the Chinese people over to the free market capitalism that used to mark the American way of doing business, running society, buying and selling and trading and building and thinking and organizing and planning and working. Something very opposite has actually occurred with American businesses going over to China and giving up on American principles in exchange for access to Chinese markets. That is to say, in exchange for money, which is another way of saying American companies and American politicians have been bribed and they've sold out the financial and political and social and spiritual well-being of the American people in exchange for money, in exchange for sweeties, to make a Chronicles of Narnia reference, Edmund betraying his own brother and his sisters to the White Witch in exchange for sweeties, betraying all of Narnia in exchange for Turkish delight. That is what we are looking at right now. And I think this is why a lot of American politicians and corporations are only very quietly trying to walk back their compromises of yesteryear and decades past. They're trying to very quietly undo the knots of the net that we see thrown over us as a people. You should definitely check out The Final War over at Epoch TV, theepochtimes.com. Judge for yourself. Give it a watch. I think the Epoch Times, I was telling my friend 
last night. I think the Epoch Times does really good journalism and they are covering in a very clear-eyed way the threat posed by communist China. This documentary could help a lot of people to understand what it is that we are faced with and why it's a very dangerous conflict that I would say we are already in. Some would say we are going to be in in a more direct way, in a more obvious and undeniable way in the next two years. But before I say too much more on that front, let's switch gears a little bit and lighten the mood. Colin Pruitt over at theamericanreformer.org has published a piece here two weeks ago on being politically realistic. He starts out, I've recently been considering the practical political aims of politically engaged Protestants. Protestants are famously cantankerous and conservatives even more so. It's joked that the various isms within the conservative tent are the rights equivalent of pronoun identities. The public watches in confusion as magisterial Baptist post-liberals debate the virtues of the American founding with paleo-liberal Anglicans. Who can blame them? Ideological inflation like gender inflation smacks of distraction in an age in which practical considerations are ignored. Debating hypothetical regimes can be worthwhile, but the price of eggs, the efficiency of airliners, and the impact of price inflation matter too. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Because this is actually a large part of the reason why I podcast in the first place. Colin Pruitt, I would love to shake your hand. This is exactly right. I was recently discussing with some other friends of mine, with the Reformed Conservative, this idea of launching a debate society here in Greeley, a distinctly Christian debate society, where we will get invested locally and invite the local community to attend these debates and invite local men to participate in these debates and thereby bring free and public discourse, letting our reasonableness be evident to all, bringing that back, bringing that back because we've lost it as a country to a very great extent. And we need it. We need it here locally in Greeley, Colorado. We need it in the state of Colorado. We need it in the Rocky Mountains region of the United States. We need it all over America. If we can't reason together, if we can't debate issues and questions of practical importance and of wisdom and of our principles and of our convictions, then we will not be able to make decisions together. And then we are in a very dangerous place. And I think we are actually, because we have lost that ability. We are in a very dangerous place because we have lost that ability to make decisions together, because we lost upstream of that the ability to reason together, to be persuasive and to be persuaded. But in talking with my friends over at TRC, my sharing the news of this potential venture with the debate society turned to a discussion of theory versus practice. And there are some who focus on practical politics, and there are some who focus on theoretical politics, and they're not the same people, typically. 
Theory should inform practice. Practice should be advised by theory and also test theories and disprove theories. Ideally, unless the mainstream media is in the bag for your political theory, unless (laughs) a repressive totalitarian regime uh, is stubborn and refuses to admit when their ideas don't work, let's try it again once more with feeling this time, even though it's never worked ever before. But I found myself, as I was talking back and forth, realizing something about myself that I don't know if I had ever really admitted to myself or anybody else. But here I was saying it out loud. And here's the thing. I cannot be content with a merely theoretical approach to theology and philosophy and the study of history and the study of economics and paying attention to the news cycle. I can't be content with a merely theoretical treatment of these things. Because if that's all that it is, if that's all that it ever will be, and it's not actually preparing for some kind of action and engagement that is meaningful, that actually addresses these problems, well then, what's the point, really? What is the point? Why? What what am I doing? What am I doing studying all these books? What am I doing paying attention to the news. It's just upsetting. It's a vanity of vanities and a chasing after the wind. It's a waste of time. You know, I told my friend last night, I said, here's the thing. Here's what I have come to realize. All of these books that I read, all of these books, I read 62 last year, all these books, maybe some people care, but the vast majority of people do not care actually about what I've learned. They're impressed that I have read so many books, but the vast majority of people don't actually care what I've learned in 62 books read in one year or hundreds of books read over the past dozen years. The majority of people just flat don't care. What they do care about is the price of eggs. What they do care about is what their kids are learning in school. What they do care about is how my kids relate to their kids if they have them or how my wife relates to their wife if they have a wife, or how I relate to them. They do care about that. And in actual fact, if that is not the end to which my means of reading these books is directed and employed, then it's just sophistry and selfish ambition. And they actually should be turned off by it because who am I? I'm trying to puff myself up. I'm trying to Make myself better than them because I read so many books? Who cares? Who cares how many books you read? What's it to me? What benefit do I derive? The rubber has to meet the road at a certain point. Otherwise, why did you make the tire? (laughs) No pun intended, but maybe I should intend a pun here. If the rubber doesn't meet the road at some time, at some point, all you get is a whole bunch of people who are tired of hearing you tell about the latest book you read and how you should read it too. And you should read it too. And you should read it too. Oh, you would love this one. At a certain point, when I see eyes glaze over as I reference books that I've read, and as I think of one particularly close family relation, not in my own household, of course, but outside of my household, who told me in the past year, he is just flat not going to read any of the books that I'm recommending ever, ever, just Don't even recommend reading books because I'm not going to read them and I don't care. I don't care that you read that in a book, that you learned this thing that you're telling me. I don't care. And I'll tell you, I will tell you that that cut me deep, that split me wide open, that 
here I've read all these books. And the more I talk about the reading of these books, the less some people want to hear me talk at all about anything. I think that's very ignorant, and I think that's very foolish. But I also think that the nature of the problem makes it impossible to dissuade people who are stuck in that kind of a stubborn ignorance to even hear that they should get themselves unstuck from such a stubborn ignorance. The nature of the problem itself means you actually can't get anywhere in persuading the other person on anything at all. They are stuck, really, truly. And this is where I say the only thing that gets us unstuck is more thinking like Colin Pruitt's on being politically realistic over at the American Reformer. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can go read the full thing for yourself. But I just want to say how relieved I am to hear this last line of the first paragraph. Debating hypothetical regimes can be worthwhile, but the price of eggs, but the price of eggs, the efficiency of airliners, and the impact of price inflation matter too. Do you know what people really care about? Whether they can feed their kids, whether they can put decent clothing on their children, whether they have reliable transportation to and from work, whether they can afford their electric bill and their gas bill and their water bill, or whether it's going to be late, this check. And hopefully the tax return comes on time when it was expected, according to hnrblock.com. That's what people really care about at the end of the day. And if studying this or that book is not getting us closer to being able to at least keep the lights on, at least, at minimum, well, then how are we going to keep on reading books in the evening like we have been? You kind of need to keep the lights on and the heat on, and you kind of need to keep eating or you're not going to even have the strength to hold the book up. These are real problems and they need real solutions. And we can't even get started if we don't develop and cultivate reasonableness and agree. We must agree on that. We must agree on the need for reasonableness and it being evident to all that we have it and we are trying to embody it in greater measure over time. It actually really does start with the ability to know truth and communicate truth and test certain proposals. Going back to Proverbs 18, it's remarkable to me that in the same chapter where we read the first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him, we also find that the first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him. Verse 17, if you're looking for it. So thank you. Thank you, Colin Pruitt, because we need this. We need more of it and keep it up. In other news, O'Keefe releases video of final statement to Project Veritas, says he was removed as CEO and from board of directors. I'm going to go ahead and play a short two-minute clip of his farewell video to Project Veritas. This was just published yesterday, and so this is late-breaking news. But take a listen to James O'Keefe, founder and, until very recently, at the helm of Project Veritas, explaining why he's leaving. There were tactical disagreements about the boldness of approaches soliciting donations. I was told, and I'm paraphrasing, by asking for X dollars right now, 
you will prevent 10x dollars down the road. That advice ran contrary to everything I knew to be true in my 13 years of fundraising. Um, but that conflict was even more fundamental and essentially boiled down to this. And my vision, I'm going to paraphrase Howard Rourke, the architect, quote, I don't have, I don't build in order to have donors. I have donors in order to build. That's what I believed. And I felt like we had a conflict of visions. We measure our success in terms of what we produce, not just in terms of our wallets. That was a pretty fundamental conflict, I felt. The day prior, I had informed him in front of his colleagues that he, if he wasn't willing to follow my lead, he'd be shown the door. I tried to deal with it privately, but I was unsuccessful, and the disagreement boiled over publicly in a staff meeting. The next day, this individual refused to resign, so I fired him. Later that same day, that's Feb Thursday, February 2nd, a few days after the 50 million views Pfizer videos, I was informed by a different officer of Project Veritas that he would go to the board in a few hours from that moment and have an emergency vote to restructure this company, receiving an agenda in my email while I was sitting on an airplane tarmac with the doors closing. The, the meeting was scheduled for the moment that my plane landed in Nashville. It became clear to me in that moment I would be removed from my position at Project Veritas by the time I landed at my destination. So our mission continues on. I'm not done. The mission will perhaps take on a new name, and it may be no longer called Veritas, so Project Veritas. I'll need a bunch of people around me, and I'll make sure, I'll make sure you know how to find me. So with that, I'm going to collect my things. I'm going to load them into my car, and I hope to see some of you soon. Mm. Now, let's be clear on a few things. One, the first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him. That is true of Pfizer and people selling textbooks to the state of Georgia's public schools containing critical race theory, but just not using the term. So therefore they can skirt the laws and still teach cultural Marxism and racism, essentially. It is also true in the case of Project Veritas, James O'Keefe and the official statement put out by Project Veritas post-departure, post his having been removed. But let me just be very clear. This right here is why I am always resistant to putting too much into trying to make this podcast successful. I'll just be honest with you. This is why I don't, as a rule, go asking people for support. I will say, if you like this content, hit subscribe. Here's how to do it. Here's where to go. I will say, share this with people that you think would benefit from it. But however big the audience is going to be, that's how big it's going to be. And this is also why it's called the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Because how would it be if I spent years and years building up an organization, doing whatever it took to get donors and donations, then having a big board of directors and having management and having staff and having offices and having all this stuff. And then all it took was some member of the board deciding, yeah, we don't like what you said here. Yeah, we don't agree with this. Yeah, we don't think we feel safe enough. If you go this direction, it's getting a little too hot. We don't want to talk about that. We don't want to go there. We don't want you to go there, in fact. Oh, you're going to go there anyway? Well, then you're going to go somewhere else now. 
and we're going to kick you out of what you actually built yourself. Now, James O'Keefe, he could just start a podcast of his own, call it the James O'Keefe Show, maybe. <laughs> and I'm sure there are a lot of people who will follow him and will abandon Project Veritas. I doubt very much that Project Veritas will be able to keep the doors open. So in some sense, what the people who didn't like the direction James O'Keefe was doing here, uh, you know, the direction he was going here, in some sense, what they've done is they've just torpedoed Project Veritas and destroyed the whole enterprise because, uh, in my view, a lot of people are just not going to keep on supporting Project Veritas without James O'Keefe. James O'Keefe was Project Veritas. Project Veritas was James O'Keefe in the sense that he was leading it and it was getting things done and it had just had its most successful undercover operation exposing Pfizer. It's very fishy. It's very, very fishy that he got ousted so soon after their most successful journalistic effort. It's very, very curious. But that is to say also that if we don't have people doing big exposés on major corporations like Pfizer or the incestuous relationship between bureaucrats in the U.S. government and pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer or defense contractors or manufacturers or pretty much any sector of the economy which the U.S. government regulates, which is every sector of the economy. If we don't have people double-checking the math and investigating and asking hard questions and making the public aware of what's going on behind the scenes, if we don't have that, then the first to state his case will always be the only one to state his case, and he will always seem right, even if he's not, and even if his being not correct is at a whole lot of people's pain and loss. And I think that's the point. I think that's the point of why James O'Keefe is all of a sudden attracting so much scrutiny because it was a hit job on him. Now you could say, well, you know, who's to say he has clean hands? He's the one going and double checking everybody else, but then, ah, what's he hiding? And I say, it's too convenient. It's just too damn convenient. In other news, speaking of the Epoch Times, like I was a moment ago, Japan mulls raising age of consent to 16 after public outrage on rape acquittals. Did you know that Japan currently has a legal age of consent of 13? They are considering raising it to 16. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Might I just suggest that part of the reason why we see the normalization of certain things here in the U.S. in recent years is because of too much globalism, too much multiculturalism, too much diversity. Just like we are making a deal with the devil for decades with China in order to access Chinese markets, we compromise on our values and our principles and we fudge and then we try to normalize the fudging so that it isn't scandalous to the sensibilities of Americans. So also, with regards to countries like Japan, by no means limited to Japan, but countries like Japan, where they will say, oh, 13, yeah, sure, sure, you can consent. It's important for us to recognize that without a fixed objective standard of right and wrong, 
it really is just a debate of expedience and what you can get people to either agree with or else quietly refuse to object to. That is to say, going back to Colin Pruitt's article over at American Reformer, hypothetical regimes can be worthwhile to debate about. The price of eggs, the efficiency of airliners, the impact of price inflation matter too, just like the conversation I was having with my friend last night. He asked me, what unites the clans? And that was a reference to Braveheart, of course. But what unites the clans? Conservatives don't seem to agree on much of anything. We don't agree, I would say, on what we're conserving, for instance, most importantly. How can we all say that we're conservatives when we don't agree on what we are conserving? The left is very united on being pig-headed and refusing to admit their mistakes. Conservatives are all over the place. It's like herding cats. Something that should unite Americans and conservatives is that you don't molest kids. We don't normalize that. We don't normalize the corruption of minors. We don't normalize all of the things, any of the things, which are contributing to the latest CDC stats on mental health for American teenagers. We don't normalize one in 10 American teenagers attempting suicide. We don't normalize kids being groomed to be homosexuals or transgendered. We should be able to agree on that. And if we can't agree on that, then I don't think we are all conservatives. I think some of us are very mistaken and need to be told, no, you're not a conservative. You are not. There need to be laws and we need to have an agreement on the basis of our laws. If it's a broad agreement that disagrees in the particulars, fine, but there needs to be a consensus and we need to arrive at that consensus through debate. And that debate needs to be public because this is the public interest we're talking about when we're talking about laws. Going back to Colin Pruitt's article then, he talks about the debate in the House of Representatives over whether Kevin McCarthy would be the Speaker of the House. And we all know that here a few weeks ago, that was a big story. And some people were being absolutely downright catastrophic about it, calling traitors all of the House Freedom Caucus members who were refusing to vote for Kevin McCarthy. But Pruitt points out, Congressman Chip Roy of Texas led the charge and explained his reforms to the Congressional Rules Package to a frustrated GOP conference during a powerful floor speech. And here's a quote from Chip Roy. We should be in here having this kind of a conversation with this many people in the room about Ukraine, and we should debate the merits, and we should debate the ups and downs of being involved. We should debate the $45 billion. We should debate whether it should be more or less. The only way you're going to get that is if you change the rules and have the leadership to advance the rules. That is to say, even in the U.S. Congress, we are not having debate like we should be having debate. And when people debate whether we should have debate, in some sense, they are agreeing that we should have debate. So it's a losing premise to say, oh, we shouldn't have debate. Well, I say we should have debate. Let's debate whether we should have debate. And then what will people do? That's the big question as to whether we can work together and live together and inhabit the same space and make decisions together. That is the decisive factor. 
what happens when we start debating whether we should even have debates? Because if the answer is a resounding no, and then when you say, oh, but we must, we must have debate. If then you start getting threatened and you start getting removed from organizations that you founded, or you start getting forced out and ostracized and punished, even physically threatened or killed, well then I say we are not united. But if we could unite over whether we should have free and public debates, that would be a start. (laughs) That would be a beginning. So this coming Saturday, I'm getting together with the men who are going to be instrumental, I believe, to this effort. And we're going to discuss and shore up details on what this might look like, because it would seem we have an agreement that we need debate and we need to know how to do it. We need to know that debate is a good thing. We also need to learn how to engage in a debate in a civil and persuasive and spirited way in gentleness and respect, giving the reasons for the hope that lies within us. Knowing what our business is, what is our business that Paul would write to the church at Thessalonica, strive to, aspire to, live quiet lives working with your hands, minding your own affairs. What is that? What are my affairs? If I don't know, how do I mind them? (laughs) The the, the frank truth, the, the frank answer is I can't. I can't if I don't know what they are. So let's debate whether this is indeed our business. You know, there was a recent post by Ben Shapiro that I got in on commenting back and forth. And I've done that a couple of times here recently. And it started out innocently enough, I think, where the post had to do with the destruction of the foundation of our own greatness here in America. That was the post by Ben Shapiro. And I'll just read it for you. This was from February 18th, 9.15 a.m. And I quote, over the latter half of the 20th century, the forces of moral relativism, radical feminism, and generational nihilism have gradually destroyed the foundation of our own greatness. Instead of adopting stronger moral standards, our society has embraced the lure of personal fulfillment. And I do believe, I do believe that my comment in reply is in the top three for most reacted to, certainly in terms of likes and loves, it's in the top three. In terms of comments in reply, it might have been the top, top, tippy top, which is fun. But here's what I wrote. I said, ironically, the ultimate impersonal fulfillment can only be found in embracing the truth of who we are relative our maker trusting and serving him with our lives and both honoring and serving one another faithfully in our individual and interpersonal lives. I said that I communicated that I expressed that and who boy, some people really did not appreciate the sentiment. Some people were downright hateful towards me. And I said nothing even specifically about Christianity. I didn't wax eloquent. I just said, ironically, if we would want personal fulfillment, it can only be found in loving God and loving our neighbor. That's the antidote. That's the paradigm shift that has occurred. It needs to be reversed in order to rediscover the foundation of our own greatness. The hatefulness towards that 
simple statement I made. It was a compound sentence, but one sentence nonetheless had a lot to do with the objection that Christians should mind their own business and what other people do in their own bedrooms is none of your business. And to that, in an earlier post from a week or two prior to this one, another Ben Shapiro post that I commented on, I said, for it being other people's private business, what they do in their own homes, it's very odd that it somehow keeps ending up on my TV screen or my computer screen or my smartphone notifications list. It's very curious that it keeps showing up in parades and in public school textbooks for being somebody else's private business. They sure are public about it. But speaking of public, Jesse James over at Nat the Bee has a post up. It just came through while I was recording, actually. Happening now, at least two dead in another huge industrial fire in Florida. Firefighters are battling a massive fire at an industrial facility by an explosion resulting in multiple casualties and fatalities. Medley, Florida appears to be a town in Miami-Dade County, part of the Miami metropolitan area. I'm scrolling through pictures and it looks like videos I could click through and watch, but I won't at the moment. There was, here in the last two weeks, a series of fires and accidents and explosions, not just here in the U.S., but also around the world. There was one posted about by Antonio Sabato Jr. on February 16th, for instance, in Kissimmee, Florida. A warehouse that stores plastic pots and fertilizer went up in smoke. There was also a mass casualty incident. After a multiple massive explosion occurred at a metal manufacturing plant in Bedford, Ohio, just yesterday, there was another train derailment in Michigan that DC Drano posted about February 16th. Verona, Italy just had a massive fire destroy a food production facility, a sausage factory, February 19th. Stu Peters posted about that. Jane Potvin shared a link to Easton Spectator of a Saskatchewan food facility burning down on February 16th, killing 10,000 pigs, cause unknown. Chicago Heights, February 18th, a morning fire at a manufacturing facility. Jack's 2D Max tweeted that one out. What's up with all these fires? Railroad manufacturing food processing plants all... Completely normal. I'll tell you what it looks like to me. It looks like the guy who predicted the fall of the Soviet Union a decade before it actually collapsed is right that we are in the midst of World War III and that these are attempts to take down our ability to support our population and a sustained war effort, destroying our capacity to produce food or manufacture finished goods that would be important in supporting a war effort. It looks a lot to me like we're being poisoned and sabotaged. This looks like covert operations to soften us up before a protracted war. That's what it looks like to me. Meanwhile, the Biden administration 
and Democrats from coast to coast are very interested in diversity, equity, and inclusivity. They're very interested in transgender ideology and homosexuality and transing the kids. And (laughs) they're very interested in critical race theory still. They're very interested in convincing us all that America is an inherently racist, oppressive country. Meanwhile, we're facing down the possibility of a hot war with China, which is an actually overtly oppressive country. Communist, totalitarian, repressive, brutal regime. America has its problems, and maybe our number is up, but we have some soul searching to do. Either way, we need to know what we are about. To bring this full circle, we need to keep the first things first. We need to understand where the rubber meets the road. We need to have public debate about what we should be doing together and what is our business. As husbands, my friend and I, who got together for three hours of great conversation, can appreciate the appropriate concern as to how do I love my wife well at all times, but specifically when there is a civilizational confrontation, a clash of civilizations, not just American civilization and Chinese civilization, but communist and Western and Judeo-Christian on the one hand, really is something we need to consider. Are we worshipers of God in spirit and in truth? What does training up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord look like if those children, those sons in particular, might be drafted? What does it look like if we're engaging in the business of the church or building up our fellow believers and encouraging them and edifying the body in obedience to God when the body might be battered by a very costly world war, the likes of which I don't even know whether we've ever seen. I don't think World War II is even going to be a good analogy if we are on the verge of World War III or if we're in it. World War II is not the best comparison any more than World War II was a direct echo of World War I. The technology advances, the capabilities proceed, but also the integration of the global economy, the Klaus Schwab's of the world have been trying to undertake for 50 years, I think it means we're going to be doing without a great many things. Sabotage aside, when trade breaks down, we're going to need to know how to grow food and how to make what we have stretch. We're going to have to learn how to repair and fix and mend instead of just replacing. We'll need to know how to conserve what we have and ration it. We'll need to know how to keep our morale up. And some people who don't want to hear about this and they don't want to think about this, I know that that is part of why they don't want to and they don't want other people to talk about it because it's upsetting. But if we're actually in it, the bigger hit to your morale will be when it catches you completely off guard and you're not in any way, shape, or form 
mentally or physically prepared for it, or, dare I say it, spiritually prepared for it. To my way of thinking, this is first and foremost a spiritual conflict. Communism is first and foremost a spiritual problem, even as it portrays itself as very concerned with the material, with physical goods and wealth and power and representation and redistributing all of the above, at root, recognize that Marx was fascinated by Satan, and it shows in the Communist Manifesto. Now, it's not just Communist Chinese who can be satanic. No, 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 no. We have quite a lot of communist thinking here in the U.S. And insofar as the Bible is clear on these things, we also need to be clear-headed and study the word and know right from wrong and know good from evil and know truth from falsehood and know when diversity is a good thing and when diversity is actually code for silencing the Christians and telling them to stow their morality, or even the most basic of allusions to a fear of God, a love for God, serving God. Diversity cannot be code for shutting up the Christians and shutting up the church. That won't do. We are really and truly lost, not just in a geopolitical sense or an economic sense, but in an eternal sense if we accept that. But so also, insofar as there is an impending struggle, or it's here right now, happening before our eyes, those who are wise see trouble coming and they hide themselves. And by hide themselves, in this case, what I really mean is we take careful note as to where our treasure is, where our heart is. Guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. Above all else, for everything you do flows from it, as the NIV would say. Proverbs 4.23 Guard your heart against putting your treasure into what can be blown up or sabotaged or hacked, what can be lost in a fire, even people's opinion of you. Guard your heart from being all wrapped up in the treasure of people speaking well of you and you being surrounded by companions. Guard your heart from being disamused where you're entertained by the enjoyment of what you have now, what you see now, but it can be taken away like that. If our treasure is in heaven with God, if our treasure is actually hearing well done, good and faithful servant, that is putting it in a safety deposit box that won't be lost, hacked, broken into. That's where to put it. That's where to put your heart. Put your heart into loving the people around you, particularly the members of your own household, because they will last forever. You know, there was a sermon this past Sunday, and it was an excellent sermon. Mike Bonnell was preaching about this very thing. Don't lay up for yourself treasures here on earth where thieves break in and steal, where moth and rust destroy. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. And to that, I say, 
if I can use my material wealth for however long it lasts, whatever it's worth, actually, it seems less and less every day in some sense, at least from a labor standpoint. I suppose my material goods are worth more and more every day, but if I can use my material wealth any way you slice it to buy favor with people and to bless them and to love them well and to serve them well and to encourage them and to serve God, well, then I am laying up for myself treasures in heaven. Because either A, God sees in secret, hopefully, ideally, and will reward if it was according to his word, if it was according to his will, or if that person comes to faith in Christ and they persevere and believe and are saved in believing, by God's grace, they will be in eternity living in glory and splendor. And how much more valuable is that? compared with whatever I might give in the way of a gift or use as a tool to demonstrate God's love for them and God's love for me and God's grace towards them and God's grace towards me. Infinitely more valuable. In some ways, it might do us a lot of good to have some soul searching brought on by a civilizational clash. It might do us a lot of good to reconsider what is actually valuable and what is not. Also, oh, by the way, for all those who say we shouldn't be extracting resources, manufacturing, producing, transporting, buying and selling and trading here in the U.S. because pollution, consider the possibility that these fires and these explosions and these train derailments (laughs) happening across the U.S., consider the possibility that that's actually Russia and China fighting their part of the World War III that we might be in right now. Consider what the world over looks like with them in charge and in control if they're willing to cause as much environmental damage with even just the East Palestine, Ohio train derailment. You've got Kentucky and Ohio waterways closing their intakes because the water may be contaminated way downstream. This is a huge deal. This is a really, really big deal. And the folks who actually really at root are not so concerned about saving the planet as they are having an excuse to hate on people who have something that they don't will be forced to reckon with whether it bothers them if we have environmental disasters here in the U.S., whether a whole lot of us have been brainwashed into believing that For the world's betterment, the United States of America should be utterly destroyed in all ways. It might do us a lot of good in the church if there is a reckoning of who called it and who was just saying peace, peace when there was no peace. That might be good to clarify. I'm not saying I pray for persecution because I don't. Actually, I'm already praying for an end to the persecution that we have a little bit of a taste of right now. Because we do see Christians penalized, mocked, ridiculed, punished in America. We do see persecution here. Don't discount the suffering of brothers and sisters here in the U.S. just because you can point to worse persecution overseas. What are you doing when you talk like that except for undercutting the moral authority and the credibility of American Christians who would say, hey, listen, we got a problem brewing here. We should figure it out. We should do something about it. We should get ready. We should 
equip ourselves with the truth. We should be wise. We should hide ourselves. The wise see trouble coming and they hide themselves. We should hide ourselves in some way, shape, or form. Or what? If persecution is not as bad here as it is in the Middle East or in China, what would we say? We want China and the Middle East to rule the world and persecute Christians all over the world, just like they do, just like the Muslims do in the Middle East, just like the communists do in China. That's what we want. That's what we would prefer. Well, if not, then we have to stop undercutting Christians here in the U.S. who are trying to stand. You can't cut people like me down. And then in five or 10 years, when there is violent persecution of Christians here in the U.S., say, oh, why didn't anybody say anything? People like me are going to be frantically flapping our arms like, are you kidding? Are you kidding? And at best, we'll be told, yeah, you were right. I think you were right. We should have listened. Because that's a bitter pill to swallow. I don't want to hear that. Why wait until it's after the fact that you're saying, yeah, you were right. You called it. We should have listened. Why wait? Test now. Be reasonable now. Listen now. At least, at least I'll be able to say it. My hands are clean. If I did my level best, over hundreds, coming up on 600 episodes, not too long from now, hundreds of episodes, hundreds and hundreds of hours of content, I said, hey guys, listen, this is a problem. This is a brewing problem. We need to change course. We need to repent. We need to stop this and we need to stop that. And listen, here's God's word and here's history and here's good sense and a sound argument. If I was right, the prudent sees danger and hides himself but the simple go on and suffer for it. First and foremost, I don't mean physically hiding, although who knows? Perish the thought, but who knows? First and foremost, your heart. Guard your heart. Be wise. Let's not be simple. Let's be wise. Let's strive to have more and more wisdom and to be correctable and to be reasonable and to reason with one another and to persuade one another and to look for ways to spur one another on towards love and good deeds by God's grace that will endure that will endure whatever happens whatever anybody else does we stick to that and it will go well tell the righteous it will go well with them but that's all the time I've got for this episode I've got to run as always thank you for listening until next time God bless You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.